0: Okay, and our anchor leg uh, for today is um, Dr. Doug Bruce, who's spoken at a number of ISUSA symposia over the years. Um, Doug's at Yale, and he um, uh, leads a a great uh, clinic and uh, clinical enterprise that deals with opioid use disorder, substance use disorders, and everybody's uh, struggling with this in some form or fashion, and so Uh, He's going to come and talk to us about uh, what what these disorders are specifically and what we might be able to do about them in a logical approach. So, Doug, welcome. Thank you, sir. Good
1: Good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right. Thank you very much. Everyone excited to be in New Orleans? I did a little research last night on drugs and alcohol. I don't suggest you do the same. I'm going to press my button here and see, there we go. So I don't have any uh, financial disclosures. The learning objectives are in your document. You can read them at your leisure. Let's start off with a question. According to the Centers for Disease Control from 1999 to 2017, How many people have died in the United States from drug overdose? You have a 20% chance of getting it right? I'm expecting everybody to get this, 100%. All right, that's good. Let's see, what does the survey say? Fantastic. Absolutely right. Not fantastic that that's the problem, but fantastic that you're aware of the problem. So as you know, overdose uh, from opioids in the United States is a national problem. It is an epidemic. It's not the first opioid crisis in America. Uh, Opioid crises go back for a hundred years actually in America, just through successive waves. The current successive wave, as you can see from the kind of orangish line skyrocketing, is synthetic opioids. So question number two, please rate your current confidence in managing addiction in people with HIV. You feel very confident, confident, you're neutral, little confidence, not confident at all. This is not in consuming drugs, remember, this is in your confidence in treating addiction. All right, survey says, Fantastic. So we have neutral to little confidence. So today's goal is to move you to confident or very confident. My first disclaimer is that in the 27 minutes and 41 seconds left, I can't teach you everything about every drug, right? So we're going to talk about opioids, and we're going to talk about methamphetamine a stimulant, but there's a lot of applicability on lots of other drugs. If I don't cover such things as the most commonly abused drugs, like alcohol and tobacco, which I saw a lot of last night on Bourbon Street, um, please come to the workshop afterwards. All right. What is addiction? Addiction, which is often now called a substance use disorder in the DSM-5, is really an important state when someone's engaging in a compulsive behavior. Right? And what's important to remember is that behavior is reinforcing, right? And there's a loss of control in limiting the intake, which is why when you go to a patient and you say, stop doing drugs, that tends not to be successful. If the person can stop with your you know, simple statement, just stop, they actually didn't have a substance use disorder. Why do people do drugs? Well, one reason is to feel good. In my patient population, and probably in yours, it's often to feel better, right? to lessen anxiety, uh, make one feel better, fewer fears, less depression. And often the situation is like this. You ask a patient, when did you start doing drugs? And I think of a a woman who told me that she started doing drugs when she was 17 years old. She knew exactly when she started. And why did she start? She started because she wanted to forget the trauma that happened in her life when she was 17. And heroin is an effective way to numb your brain and not have to think about the past. It's not the best way per se, but it is a coping mechanism and we in fact call it a maladaptive coping mechanism. Now people start to do drugs for many reasons, but just because you do drugs doesn't mean you will become addicted or develop a substance use disorder. And everything in the world is on this continuum, all right, everything. HIV is on a continuum of biology and the environment and so is addiction. And what that means is we'll say in the addiction field that some people are genetically predisposed to things like alcoholism or heroin addiction or methamphetamine addiction. But just because you're predisposed does not mean you're going to do it. Often there may be an environmental insult. In the case of that woman who said at 17 she experienced trauma, there was an environmental insult that laid the groundwork for her to eventually become addicted. So one of the key themes here is that your brain, or the brain of a substance user, has a lot of wiring, and that wiring is being co-opted by addiction, right? And that changes motivational priorities. The same neural circuits that are involved in the great pleasure you took in going out to lunch today, right, is co-opted by heroin. And just like there's, a, opioid epidemic, there's an obesity epidemic in America, and if you've ever tried to tell a patient, just stop eating donuts, right? I've never been successful. In fact, at one point in my career, I stopped trying to get people to decrease donut consumption and simply said, if you eat the same number of donuts every day, I can titrate your insulin to your donuts, right? (laughs) Anyone else ever done that before, right? So the same way, if you think about it, heroin's co-opting food and sex circuitry in the brain, primal things with lots of power, which is why when you simply ask somebody to stop, they're not going to stop eating, they're not going to stop having sex, they're not going to stop doing drugs. This is work out of England, and in England they decided they'd come up with a fun little term, chemsex, as though it's something new, but we've always known that when people drink alcohol or do drugs, they engage in risky sex. Right, And I think it's very important to remember, oftentimes when we think about substance use and among people with HIV, we're often thinking about uh, people who are not taking their HIV therapy and so are having personal negative consequences as a result. But we also have to remember that people are engaging in lots of risky behaviors. And so that's one reason it's so important to get everybody in treatment, but also it's an important reminder that our patients who are using substances We have to be very aggressive about screening for other sexually transmitted infections. In my neck of the woods, there's a syphilis epidemic, and that's something that we have to be very thoughtful about. All right, some basic principles. And I know that you all have the slides, so what I'm going to be doing is kind of marching through to try and highlight some key things. And again, if you have questions, uh, we can discuss them later. So the first and key principle is that we need to treat everyone with dignity and respect. And that's particularly true with substance users. Substance users, are often a very maligned population. People who use drugs are people. And one of the things that's very important is not to take things personally, right? Patients who use substances are going to lie, they're going to manipulate. These are survival mechanisms. This is how you survive on the streets. If on the streets you tell everyone your secrets and you're honest to everyone, you're not gonna make it for very long, right? So don't take it personally. In fact, you might admire some of their creative conversations. Yeah. I had a patient once who tried to get me to prescribe opiates for him. It was the worst story I had ever heard of why I should give him opiates. And I, in fact, I said to the patient, this is the worst story I've ever heard. It's so bad, I'm going to leave. I'll come back and give you a second try. So I left and I came back and he said, yeah, you know, Dr. Bruce, that was really bad, wasn't it? I was like, yes, it was. And no, you can't have Oxycontin, right? So it's very important when we think about screening, we need to screen everyone, right? And we need to screen not just for what are you doing, but what about your family substance use, right? If you grow up in a home where people are doing drugs and alcohol, that's going to set a frame for you. It may speak to a genetic predisposition. It may speak to environmental insults, but either way, it speaks to risk. We want to make sure that we include alcohol and over-the-counter drugs. People are using all kinds of things to numb their brain. We had two guys show up at our detox asking for a a Seroquel detox because they were injecting Seroquel, right? People are abusing gabapentin. We all know that, right? Like, gabapentin is for sale everywhere because it gives you a kind of drunken, intoxicated feeling. And what's your BAL on gabapentin? Zero. Right? Your breathalyzer is zero on gabapentin, but you feel great. Your urine tox for your parole officer, fine. Who screens for gabapentin? Right? I don't. So think about all of the drugs that people are taking. Think about their use, the frequency of pe- what people are using. And also make sure that when you're screening, you're screening everyone so that people don't feel profiled. You only screen people like me. No, we screen everybody. and. Don't just do anecdotal things. Use a validated screen, and there are lots of screens. One of the things that we do in our environment is we use a two-screen basic question. It's in your handout. And the basic reason we use something simple is we want everyone in primary care to do this. So we have about 34,000 people we have to screen annually, and we want everybody to get screened with these basic questions. If they screen positive with these, we're going to go to additional screening measures. I understand in a busy practice, you can't do 50 questions for every patient every time you see them, But find something that's simple, that's validated, and works for your practice. Something that's really important is just to think systematically, right? You have to provide what we call low threshold rapid access and appropriately dosed treatment. What does that mean? If it's easier for your patient to get illicit drugs and alcohol than help from you, where does the patient go? You all know like there's home delivery drugs, right? It's really amazing. Like, there's a whole pizza business around this, right? I mean, it's, you know, pizza, right? Pizza's not in the box, The whole point is you have to make sure that it's convenient. If that patient shows up to your clinic seeking buprenorphine treatment and you say, well, you know what? Tomorrow at 4 o'clock I have an open appointment. That patient's not coming back tomorrow at 4. That patient needed help now. And a way to show respect and support to that patient is to help that patient when the patient needs help. The other really important thing is that culturally appropriate counseling for addiction treatment is critical, but don't wait for some perfect counseling modality before you start buprenorphine. There's a lot of data out of the methadone world starting from the 70s that getting people in treatment immediately is effective and much more effective than waiting. When you wait, you run the risk that someone's going to overdose and die. Treat everybody. One of the things that's really important is to make sure that we're treating people for the medical consequences of addiction, right? so that's HIV and Hep C. There's actually no data to support denying or waiting treatment, right? We treat everybody's Hep C. If you're actively using, if you're actively drinking, the meds work, right? All I have to do is make sure you take them. But if you take them, we can get you cured. We want everyone to think about prescribing Naloxone. Maybe the patient you're prescribing to doesn't need Naloxone, so you think. Right, oftentimes we'll hear, "Well, my neighbor has a problem or something." The more people that have naloxone, the more it's in the environment, more pe- more lives can be saved. Uh, and please make sure to think about guidelines. Right, so the uh, DHHS guidelines were updated this summer with a whole new section on substance use that talks a lot more about drugs that we don't have time to cover today. And also look at the guidelines around the prescribing of medications and for chronic pain. All right, a case: You inherit a new patient, a 45-year-old gentleman comes in. For his refill of oxycodone, 30 milligrams, two tabs every six hours, 240 tablets, which might be the total amount Connecticut will let you have monthly, which is why the patient knows that. You notice there hasn't been a urine tox in five years, but notice that there have been a few recent emergency department visits for methamphetamines. The patient today is agitated, struggling to sit still, and wondering why this refill seems to take so long. What do you do? You curse the provider who left you a mess. Give the refill and find a way never to see the patient again. Call social work or anyone to try and diffuse the situation and get the patient into treatment. Talk with the patient about the emergency department visit and methamphetamine used to engage interest in treatment and, and refill the medication or D, but do not refill the medication. So you, you do D and then don't refill. All right, survey says. All right. So the button, I appreciate the honesty of the four percent who are cursing the provider who left a mess. Um, I'm, I'm sure that everyone in all the other sections are still cursing that provider. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the last two options. So one is, talk with the patient about the emergency department visit and the method that have been used to gauge interest and refill versus don't refill. So one reason to refill might be if that urine toxicology information from the emergency department also had oxycodone in it, right? So if the patient was taking the oxycodone and struggling with methamphetamine use, you might have a reason to believe that the patient has two problems. They have chronic pain, they're taking a pain medicine, but they also are struggling with an addiction. Now, if they did not have oxycodone in the urine tox, And obviously, I left that out of the case, so hence the discussion. But if they didn't have that, then you might ponder, hmm, I wonder if the oxycodone is being used to fund the methamphetamine use, and I shouldn't prescribe. In my own practice, that's what would happen. If you had oxycodone in your urine, I'm going to give you a short prescription, a limited amount. That limited amount is getting you to see a therapist to discuss drug treatment. Failure to meet with a person, no more medication afterwards. But if you didn't have oxycodone in your urine, I'm not giving you any. We're talking about treatment for methamphetamines. I'm sure no one here has ever had a patient say, it isn't really a problem, I can stop anytime. Uh, I had a patient once tell me if she needed to quit cocaine use, it wasn't a problem. Her cocaine dealer was gonna help her stop. When I pointed out that there was probably a conflict of interest for the cocaine dealer, she said, no, he's a nice guy. Right? She did not get sober. Right? So it's important to remember that in the transtheoretical model of change, and this is really just for your review uh, in the notes, a lot of patients can be in this pre-contemplation stage or denial, and it becomes very important to understand where your patient is and understand that patients can be at different levels with different drugs. So oftentimes we see patients with opioid use disorder coming in for treatment, but they're also drinking alcohol, they're using stimulants, and they don't think those are a problem, right? So don't deny some treatment when a patient's not ready for all treatment. If the patient's ready for treatment for the opioid use disorder, treat it. And then you can work on the denial. You can work on pointing out the negative consequences, right? So that's what happens to our patients. Say you're using cocaine and opioids, you get on buprenorphine, you stop your opioid use, but you're still struggling with cocaine use. Well, now you have to come in every week. Well, I don't wanna have to come in every week. Well, let's talk about that cocaine use. That's why you're coming in every week. Also think about harm reduction. There are a lot of important things to reduce the transmission of HIV, and it's very important. Uh, Medical people are not good at boundaries because we always want to be helping. But you have to keep in mind that sometimes you're helping is enabling things. It's always important for boundaries and for patients to have consequences. All right. The life cycle of a heroin user. This is from the 1960s uh, from the kind of godfather uh, and godmother of uh, methadone. So what you see is the, lifestyle, the life cycle of a heroin user. On the your far left is use. The little tick marks at the bottom show when people are getting high. Over time, you develop tolerance. And then You struggle with uh, trying to just feel not sick anymore. And then ultimately, what do people do? They use lots of drugs in an attempt to get that euphoria again. So let's talk about opioids. A 30-year-old comes into clinic, and through much creative and interesting conversations, you conclude that the oxycodone you are giving for back pain is not in the urine toxicology today, but morphine is. You refuse to refill the medication and call someone else to deal with the upset patient. Agree with the patient that it was a one-time thing and give all or some of the oxycodone. Discuss treatment for opioids and start buprenorphine. And then D and E are instead of buprenorphine methadone or instead of methadone naltrexone. What are your thoughts? says All right a lot of people are excited to prescribe buprenorphine fantastic so the key piece of this case is oxycodone does never shows up as morphine in the urine toxicology right oxycodone is met metabolized to noroxycodone heroin is metabolized uh, to morphine right it's diacetylmorphine is the compound so the point is uh, and i have made some patients very unhappy when i've told them that the opiate positive is not oxycodone, right? So make sure you know what your urine toxicology shows, but in this case, this patient uh, sold off the oxycodone, purchased heroin, hoping that the urine tox would be fine and went and used heroin. And this is a person who needs treatment and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So we know that buprenorphine methadone and naltrexone are all FDA approved in the United States for the treatment of opioid use disorder. It's also very important to remember that pharmacologic therapy is part of addressing the situation and when we think to the earlier slide about biology, you know genetics and environment, so that big continuum, right? medication it deals with the biology, but it doesn't deal with behavior, right so that environment and behavioral stuff that's where therapy comes in, right The cup of coffee in the morning can make your partner more tolerable, but doesn't fix your partner, right? just to bring it home so Buprenorphine is, uh, binds to mu opioid receptors, and in this slide, you see the top is an MRI, and then you have PET scans below. The PET scans, uh, the radionuclide, is targeting the mu opioid receptor. In the first series, you have lots of colors lighting up. That's because no buprenorphine is present. As you start to give a person buprenorphine, you start to see that those receptors begin to fill up. At two milligrams, you're filling up almost 50% of opioid receptors, at 16%, and some patient upwards of 90%. By comparison, approximately 80 milligrams of methadone is gonna fill up about 31% of receptors, maximally, at the range of 16 to 31%. So if you think about it in the most simplest terms, methadone can only be prescribed for opioid use disorder in a methadone clinic. That's what OTP means, opioid treatment program. It's very efficacious and it has the best retention. Buprenorphine, its great advantage is it's office-based. Everybody here can do it. Thankfully, that's physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants. We need everybody to be able to address the opioid crisis. It's efficacious, but its retention is not as good as methadone. Right? And when you think about it, retention is really important when we think about the long term. But not, methadone is not always accessible. Now, Naltrexone is also office-based. There's also data that's efficacious, but its retention is less than methadone and less than buprenorphine. When someone's in treatment, this is again with methadone, that's the little M. The goal is for the person to feel okay. Uh, If someone uses, that's the little H, um, that use can cause a little bump in the number of opioid receptors that are being stimulated but overall, the patient doesn't feel the effect of the medication right, or the, the drug, which is critically important. Because what you want is you know that substance use is a chronic relapsing disorder. Patients are going to relapse at some point. They're going to try the, another drug. But what you want is for there to be a blunting of that response. And when the response is blunted, then the patient can have a moment where therapy kicks in and you say, oh my goodness, that's not what I want to do. I'm going I'm to stop. All right, methamphetamines because it's the end of the day and you all need stimulants. <laughs> methamphetamines are one of the most dangerous drugs for the brains of our patients. I'm not going to recommend drug abuse, but if you're going to use drugs, stay away from methamphetamines. All right. What you can see here is the methamphetamine uh, user on the left and Alzheimer's patient on the right, and the red is volume loss. So. Uh, You know when the Alzheimer's brain looks much better, there's a problem, all right? And concerning the data among people with HIV is that the concern is that some of the neurocognitive changes are permanent, right? Among people without HIV, it appears to be reversible, but over a protracted, upwards of 14 months may be required of sobriety to get the brain back. But in people with HIV, it appears to be permanent. So what does it do? One of the things it's going to do is it's going to cause a loss of dopamine. It's going to cause uh, issues in gait. That's the motor task that was tested. It also, uh, for delayed recall and memory task, these were words remembered. In both instances, you have a situation where there's a loss of memory and a loss of motor. And again, in people with HIV, some of these issues may be permanent. And that's critically important. What happens when your patient can't remember if he or she took medication? Right? It's also critically important when you think all therapy is based on an ability to remember, to remember things learned. So methamphetamines are disastrous. Uh, This is for your review later. There are uh, a bunch of specific effects that methamphetamines have in people with HIV. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, the main letdown here is that there are no pharmacologic agents that have demonstrated efficacy through phase two trials. And currently, the mainstay of both cocaine and methamphetamine use is both motivational interviewing, which is trying to get people to think about doing treatment, but also cognitive behavioral therapy, which is really trying to get you to think differently about your drug use and trying to get you to uh, be motivated to do different things. Right. Uh, I've listed in the handouts medications that have been tried that don't work. And let's, in the last five minutes, try to bring it all together. Jim is a 47-year-old gentleman with HIV who has a history of heroin injection. He's on methadone maintenance and is receiving opioids from his primary HIV provider for back pain. He starts complaining of more back pain. I'm sure this has never happened to anyone here. Members of his care team believe that he is drug seeking, deny his request, and refer him to you to address his complaints. You pretend to be sick and avoid seeing the patient. You take a history and do a physical exam. You inform the patient that he already has someone giving him opioids and go back to that person. Or you say, because he's on methadone, regardless of the cause of pain, no additional medications are available. What do you think? And while you're doing that, I'll just remind you if we couldn't cover all drugs today, So uh, make sure to check out the DHHS guidelines updated review that include all of the substances of concern that are being abused. Uh, And if you have additional questions, come to the workshop. All right, survey says, take a history and a physical. Fantastic. So you're gonna take a physical and a history and you find out that he's had lumbar back pain for years. But in the last six months, or six weeks, excuse me, he developed a brand new pain. Literally, when I saw him, he said, yeah, it always hurts down here, but now it's, like, here. I go, oh, that's interesting. When I examined him, he had pinpoint pain on his thoracic spine, and I sent him for an MRI, and then I got a panicked call from neurosurgery. Right. What had happened? Well, he's a heroin user. Just because he's on methadone doesn't mean he doesn't occasionally use. He injected. He got bacteremic. He got osteo. Why do I end with that? I end with that because we're talking about substance use disorders, and what we cannot forget is that people who use drugs also have real pain. And it becomes very easy when we're biased against a group of people to assume that their complaints are really just drug-seeking behavior. This gentleman, this is a real case, this gentleman's provider delayed doing anything and missed a very serious condition in a patient because this was a gentleman who was a heroin addict. Of course he's just drug seeking. Please make sure that you take a history. Please make sure you do that physical. You don't want to be the person that missed real pathology in someone because you were biased against that person because they have a drug problem. The guideline that I put up here was the uh, IDSA clinical practice guideline for the management of chronic pain in people with HIV. This guideline talks about drug urine toxicologies. It talks about issues such as I've raised here, how to prescribe opioids to people who are on methadone or buprenorphine if necessary. But again, the key factor bringing this all together is that we have to be really thoughtful about what we're doing with our patients, right? Everyone who's coming to you who has a substance use disorder may or may not feel comfortable disclosing that. Please make sure that you have a non-judgmental environment Please make sure that you're asking everyone questions so no one feels targeted. Make sure those questions are good questions using validated evidence-based medicine, that they get you answers that you need. And then when you get that information, please do something about it. Do something soon, don't delay. Remember that if you delay, patients are gonna go find help elsewhere and that help may be to go use. Please make sure you're thoughtful about your use of urine toxicology and where you can equip yourself with the skills to provide treatment in your clinic. Your patients trust you and are going to trust you more than a stranger and trust you more than the person across town that you referred that patient to. Make sure that you can prescribe buprenorphine, that you can prescribe naltrexone, that you are prescribing naloxone. There's some additional websites and useful information, hopefully you'll find it useful uh, in the slides. And I look forward to your questions. I also look forward to, if you don't ask them or don't come to the workshop, shoot me an email so I can hopefully either answer them or guide you to answers. And I thank you again for making it through the
0: day and ending it with me. Thanks, Doug. Uh, Notice that the email was to Robert Bruce, who's his cousin. And... uh, (laughs) Actually, it's his real first name. He goes by Doug. Great talk, as always. Um Thanks, sir. here's a just a structural question, because in our audience are clinics from all over the country, representatives from there. So, how much of this should be done um, if we have two options? One is each individual provider sort of adopts it and becomes expert at this and does the best they can in the clinic for all the reasons you said about doing the history and physical, or setting up a separate pain management or uh, opioid use disorder or substance use disorder subclinic that, that manages this that the uh, average provider is aware of, is sensitive to, but doesn't get into the weeds with treatment. What, yeah. what do you think works best?
1: So you gave me an either or, so I'm going to say both and. Okay. So uh, what, what we tend to do is we try to get everybody able to prescribe buprenorphine and understanding addiction, the basics. And so what we do is say there should be no wrong door. You come into the clinic, you as a provider identify that the patient has a situation, but maybe you don't have a lot of expertise, you're early on in understanding treatment. So what we do in our environment is say, okay, look, I'm going to start you on buprenorphine, I'm going to provide you enough, I'm linking you to a team, and the team has greater expertise. The patient's incentive to engage in the team is you've helped me today, you've provided me with medicine to tomorrow or to whenever that appointment is. It means that any day you have access, you can get services, but it also means that that provider doesn't feel alone. It also means that the provider has a team to call. So if I'm not sure what to do today, I'm gonna call the team. I'm gonna find out, can you guys overbook? When can you get this patient in? So it's a both end.
0: Yeah, so it's like uh, one message is like from rent, the play where today for you, tomorrow for me, something like that. Uh, What is the retention, why is the retention rate so low in naloxone uh, use and even bup clinics compared to methadone clinics?
1: So methadone is a full agonist. So uh, methadone withdrawal is more severe than buprenorphine withdrawal. Buprenorphine is a partial agonist. And naltrexone is an antagonist, there's no withdrawal. So think about it, if you skip out on treatment and you feel fine, you have less motivation to go back to treatment. But if you skip out on treatment and you feel horrible, you go back to treatment. And that's the basic reason. When we did a randomized control trial looking at methadone and buprenorphine, we eventually had to increase randomization to two to one because the buprenorphine patients kept dropping out.
0: Mm-hmm. So those of you who take that post-test know that there's a question about methadone versus buprenorphine. Methadone to buprenorphine to naloxone is the right answer, just saying. See who's paying attention. (laughs) Um, How about drug-drug interactions with antiretrovirals with buprenorphine? So uh, there are really no significant drug-drug
1: interactions with buprenorphine. The HHS guideline has a great table that details everything. The main interactions have been with methadone, and the main medication is efavirenz.
0: Please. Just, Just keep talking, they'll turn it on
2: for that really compelling um, conversation, especially your challenge to us at the end. Um, I had a patient a few months ago say to me, an older veteran, um, African-American gentleman, say to me, you know, Doc, it's really frustrating because back when it was the crack epidemic, we were thrown in jail, and now when the opioid crisis has come up, there is compassion and motivation to treat And I, it it gave me pause because I had to look at my own internal bias with why I had trouble with the way that we were approaching this when it first came out as a provider Mm. and really challenged myself to not let that bias get in the way of giving appropriate care. So my question, multiple questions, (laughs) (laughs) um, is to reflect on that. Because we do know, as those of us who have the honor of knowing epidemiology and knowing that there is a high proportion of people in the opioid crisis who are of color, but still to understand that, and, and also knowing that we have treatments that are available that make this something that is attractive from the, in the research sphere, I do worry that it is going to deepen the disparities in care and the systemic biases in treating um, drugs that are disproportionately seen in underrepresented minorities. and. Um, and to challenge us as providers to be thinking about whether we also are putting people into these boxes of victim requiring compassion versus villain who who has put this upon himself and for whom I don't go the extra mile. Just wanted to know your thoughts.
1: Well, I think think you said something very important, so thank you. So uh, I guess I would echo um, with another story, which is um, when methadone was first developed, uh, it was developed by a, a gentleman, uh, Vincent Dole, at Rockefeller. And Vincent Dole was an, was an endocrinologist. And his job, he was asked by the mayor of New York City to solve the heroin epidemic. And this was the heroin epidemic in the 50s. So back then, you know, the, a lot of the jazz musicians, uh, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, they were like the rock stars of the day, right? And John Coltrane died of liver cancer probably, maybe related to hepatitis C due to his injection. So Back then, there was this big push to address the opioid epidemic, and they found this medication, methadone, that was successful. And then something happened. It was a, it was a paper and jam, it was this huge deal. We found a cure for heroin dependence. Like It's a big deal, think about it. What then happened was they took the medication to Rikers Island. And when they took it to Rikers Island, suddenly everyone started around disparities. People started saying, well, I don't know, if, if this is a medication for felons, maybe it's not the medication for my kid. Right? And so I think to your point, how we talk about things and where we bring treatment has huge implications and we can unwittingly participate in creating bias and hurting communities. And I think it's very important that we sit down and we talk to people We should never, ever presume that we know what's right for a community. We need people within a community to speak up for their needs. And we need to empower them to do that. And then we need to find ways to work with community leaders to make that happen. Working in a community health center context, I found that's critical. We have health centers in all different communities. And in each community, we make an effort to make sure that health center is reflective of the community. And I think it's critically important. We should never assume that we know best and that we can fix the problem because that's what they thought in New York City with a powerful medication that's incredibly effective. But nobody here, I would imagine, would be very happy to declare, my son or daughter's on methadone, it saved his or her life. Most people in America would be ashamed to say that their kid's on methadone, which is absolutely tragic. But it all started with really a well-intended action that had huge negative consequences socially. Mm -hmm. Report. So thank you again for your yeah. comment. It's yeah. very important.
0: A couple of other quick things. Um, uh, do you know of anything that's in the works for um, treating uh, meth- methadone dependence, uh, any kind of medication substitution therapy? Methadone or methamphetamine? Oh, sorry, methamphetamine. Sorry. Sorry.
1: So no, Uh, they've tried giving people stimulants. They've tried other things that modulate the receptors. Stimulants are very, very difficult, both in cocaine use disorder and in methamphetamine use. They're trying multiple drugs. There's one lead. There was a recent uh, paper that showed, uh, in a very small group of people, a medication to be efficacious. The problem is that that's actually happened a lot, so no one's talking about it until it's validated in a much larger trial. So maybe hope, but don't hold your breath.
0: For someone who has an opioid use disorder, is there any formula for timing of opioid withdrawal, certain percentage a week, or how do you go about that?
1: No, so everybody's really different. Part of it's gonna depend on the social support, counseling that's availability. Um, What we tend to do is just meet with patients as frequently as needed uh, in order to kind of guide people through that process.
0: What's your starting dose or your starting approach for Suboxone Uh, in a patient who is not in withdrawal. Right, so if you're, say uh, a patient comes out of prison uh, and is looking
1: for relapse prevention, always remember that the guidelines around that are if you went into prison with an opioid use disorder, you can leave prison and get started on treatment. You don't have to use, you don't have to relapse. That's critically important. Methadone programs should be doing that, so should buprenorphine prescribers. But you need to start out at a different dose because the person's not opioid tolerant. So we start out at two milligrams, um, which is the lowest film dose, and then from there, we'll increase as necessary.
0: But two milligrams is typically helpful. That's a good lead into the next question, which is, um, we've got a patient who's on Suboxone 24 milligrams a day and they feel like that's not holding them and they want to go up to 28 or 32. Because more is better. Yes. So the first thing, so
1: obviously, you have to worry about diversion, right? Um, Suboxone, like every other drug, can be sold on the street. So You want to make sure that the person isn't diverting. The most common reason that patients want to go up on their medication is because the medication has sublingual absorption. Most patients, I find, don't like to wait, right? So I've had patients that say, oh, yeah, you know what I do is I'm drinking my Dunkin' Donuts coffee while it's in my mouth, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I suck on it really quickly, and it goes away. What you have to make sure is a patient understands that when it's a film, it's not doing anything. It's only when it's dissolved. When it's dissolved, it's now mobile in your mouth, and it's getting absorbed, right? So if you're sucking on it and swallowing it all the time, there's very little opportunity for the medication to be in your mouth and become absorbed. And what's buprenorphine's first pass hepatic metabolism? 90%. I could swallow, I'm opioid naive, I could swallow 8 milligrams of Suboxone and probably be totally fine, and probably Benadryl would do more to me, because 90% of it's destroyed by my liver. That's why it has to be sublingual. So the first thing you have to do is, what I have to do is have patients come in and show me how they take it. Because every patient says, I take it the way you told me to, right? But that's what my children tell me when I add, right? Dad, I cleaned my room just the way you said. We have different definitions of cleaning. Patients often have different definitions of holding it under their tongue. So by observing
0: it, you'll know the truth. Great. Wonderful practical advice, and something we all uh, are experiencing every day. And it's very helpful to hear your comments. Thanks, Thanks Doug.